1: Well, after taking a day off yesterday so those folks up in Washington could uh, conduct the impeachment hearing, we're back with you today on Political Rewind and really glad uh, to be back on the air because there's so much to talk about in politics here in Georgia as well as uh, everything that's going on up in Washington. I'm Bill Nygut. A couple of quick notes before I introduce the panel and we start our conversation for today. A reminder that as of January 6th, Monday, January 6th, We are going to be on the air five days a week, Monday through Friday. A lot of you listen to the show have been saying to us for quite some time you want to hear us every day, which is very gratifying uh, to all of us who work on the show. Um, But it was also – we used to try to figure out how to explain – Well, we're on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, not on on Thursday and back on on Friday, and I won't even bother with the way in which that got grandfathered in, but we're not going to have to answer that question starting on Monday, January 6th. So I hope you'll be with us then. And of course, as Tom Faust reminds me all the time, my job, among other things, is to tell people if you can't be near your radio at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you can subscribe to our podcast, wherever you get your podcast from, and If you want to watch the show uh, at your leisure, you can go to the GPB news page on Facebook. Right now we're on Facebook Live, but those shows are archived so that you can watch him whenever you feel like it. Okay, enough of the announcements. Tamar Hallerman, GPB, (laughs) GPB, AJC uh, reporter, fresh from Washington, now in Atlanta, settled in, set to do your work. From out of here, out of the the fray up there, welcome to the show. Here you are in the studio.
0: Thank you. First week in Atlanta.
1: Tell everybody what kind of work you're going to be doing for the AJC here.
0: Sure. I'm describing it to people as middle distance running. Like if, if you're investigative reporters, you're long distance runner. If, if in D.C. where I was dealing with a lot of breaking news, I was a sprinter. Now I'm taking the middle distance approach. I'm going to try and step back from the day to day news and, and kind of do try at least to do smarter stories about all these actions happening on the federal and state level, what it means for Georgian lives. I'm also going to be covering stuff like gender, women in the workplace, LGBT, religious liberty, um, water wars still. So, so plenty of new and old things.
1: It's interesting to hear you say that, among other things, you'll be looking at women's issues because um, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they've really now got an uh, 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 they have an editor in each of those papers assigned specifically to uh, to ferret out and to do more in-depth reporting on just that, women's issues.
0: Yeah, and, and it's something that's, that's new to me. I You know, the last 10 years I've been really focused on Congress and legislation yeah. and politics, always viewing it yeah. through that lens. And I'm excited to – I mean, all of that obviously is infused in this new coverage area, but it'll, it'll be cool to do it with a new angle.
1: Well, we're glad that you're going to be with us um, when you are here in the studio. So welcome to Atlanta, Thank tomorrow. You. Hallerman. Joel Alvarado is uh with us in the studio today. Joel is uh you're the what, the vice president? Executive vice Executive president. Executive vice mm. president of Ohio River South. You're a consulting firm, you do government relations work. You also do political campaigns. Correct. Your partner Howard Franklin, who is a frequent panelist on the show too. Absolutely. Uh remind us of the campaigns that you're looking at working on this this uh cycle.
2: Well, one definitely is a Teresa Tomlinson yeah. working on that one, and, yeah. and there are some others that are emerging. You know, it's uh, this is sort of the calm before the storm. Yeah. So we're sort of putting all the the, uh, the opportunities on the table and see which ones makes the most sense because we don't. We we have a conscience in our organization, so we don't want to just support somebody who we don't believe in. We want to make sure we have the right person who has the right message and right vision, and then we put all our blood, sweat, and tears behind that person to ensure wow. they get success. Well,
1: it's, it's good to have you here, Joel. I, uh, you talk about Teresa Tomlinson. I noticed today Republican operatives – who have been peppering all of us in the media with uh, releases about uh, the awful people running for the Democratic nominations for various positions, have really been on Tomlinson today. They say all the Democratic candidates for Senate are pro-impeachment and are awful people because of it, but especially Teresa Tomlinson has really uh, thrown her uh, weight behind impeachment. So... The uh, Republicans must see her as something of a threat.
2: If they're not talking about you, you must not be doing something <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> Martha Zoller is with us from the studios of WDUN in Gainesville, where she does her daily talk show, a very, very popular show up that way. Martha We introduce you always as someone who's been on both sides of the fence. You have worked in politics. You've worked for uh, David Perdue. You ran for Congress yourself. You worked for a while uh, early in the Kemp administration. Uh, But now you're back to radio. And aren't you glad you are?
3: I am, and I have to tell you, I had to chuckle when you were saying the calm before the storm (laughs) because it hasn't been very calm. (laughs) But but I love this, you know. I mean, this is, um, you know, I've loved politics since I was a kid, discussing it around the dinner table with my family, and uh, I still love it today.
1: All right, well, good because we're going to talk a lot about it today. Uh, District Court Judge Steve Jones has been uh, is sitting on the (coughs) case brought by Stacey Abrams organization uh, challenging some aspects of uh, the voting, uh, the election system in Georgia. We know there's a big federal case that slowly making its way through uh, court that Fair Fight Action is uh, uh, trying to move forward. Steve Jones has been sitting on that case. Uh, Tamar, one of the things that Fair Fight Action had asked of the court is that they be allowed to interview Governor Kemp about various aspects of what they see as efforts to suppress the vote. Things like exact match, things like uh, purging the voter rolls, um, and other aspects of uh, what Fair Fight Action is concerned about. Jones this morning essentially said most of those things – he he kind of took this from a 10,000-foot level and said, look – a When a plaintiff comes here and wants to talk to someone of a governor's statue, a governor's statue, whoever it may be, there has to be compelling reason why that person's time should be taken up by dealing with the issues that the plaintiff wants to deal with. In this case, uh, we think that governor – there are other people who the plaintiffs can talk to about things like exact match, which started before uh, camp voter purges, that sort of thing. But the one thing they said – was that the governor should have to come in and answer two hours of questions about a statement that he made uh, about voters? I, I'm, I'll read the statement, then I'll turn it over to you, and then everybody can jump in. Yeah, we don't—we can't really play it because the audio isn't good enough. But um, Better Georgia, a Democratic-leaning uh, organization, captured these comments by Secretary of State Brian Kemp back in. 2014, he was talking to a group of Gwinnett County Republicans, and among other things, he said this, In closing, I just wanted to tell you real quick after we get through this runoff, you know the Democrats are working hard and all these stories about them, you know, registering all these minority voters that are out there and others that are sitting on the sidelines. If they can do that, they can win these elections in November. Fair Fight Action believes the governor should have to answer what he meant by those comments and and the judge agreed with him.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, it's the sort of thing, I, I guess you can look at it from any number of ways. It depends on how you want to interpret those remarks. You, you know, if you're a Republican, you can say, oh, but but he's using this as a rallying cry to say, OK, Republicans, we need to step up what we're doing. If you're a Democrat, you can frame this as a very sinister way. See, he's, he's going to go after us and, and our voters.
1: Yeah. Um, Martha, you jump in because you pointed out that there's a larger context to these remarks.
3: Well, absolutely, and Jim Galloway, who's on this program all the time and has been covering Georgia politics for you know a very long time, wrote an article about this in 2014, and he gave the second part of that statement, which was, "Well, we've got to do the exact same thing." I would encourage all of you, if you have an Android or an Apple device, download that app and make it your goal to register one new Republican voter. So, you know, if you take the entire statement in context, what it's really saying is. It is a rallying cry. It's like, wow, they're way ahead of us. And as a person that's been involved in Republican politics for the last probably 10 years, the biggest complaint we've had at Republican meetings is we do a lousy job of registering voters. We haven't had an actual voter registration drive in Georgia in 20 years for Republicans. And it's been something that if you're inside Republican politics, you've been saying we're doing a lousy job at this and we need to do a better job.
1: So um, you know, given all that, Joel, uh, you've got to say that the, the judge made a very, very narrow ruling. Uh, he 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 believed that only the governor could speak to what he meant when he was secretary of state and said that that those comments. Uh, and I'm sure he'll go into court and do exactly what Martha did, say there was a larger context, but. Even though it's very narrowly defined now in terms of what he's going to testify to, the very fact that a governor is being called in to answer questions in a deposition, I I assume, on this is um, somewhat dramatic. Governors don't get called in uh, very often to answer
2: in lawsuits like this. I would say that a couple of things. One is I respect the judge in regards regarding his handling of this. I think he's very respectful of the office and I do appreciate that because I'm a Georgian like everyone else, and I respect the, the position of governor. Two, I think that it, it it highlights the importance of this case, that it warrants having the governor coming for two hours to be deposed to get clarity regarding what he said. So I don't think we should discount that. And then the third thing, too, I like to believe that what, what Fair Fight, and I don't work with them on this issue, of course, but I think they're looking at intentionality and that sort of cause and effect in that, they look at the language that's, that, was, uh, that was uttered by, the, by then-Secretary of State Kemp, and they look at some of the actions that have taken place in various election cycles, and they say, hmm, it seems that uh, people of color are the ones that are most impacted by decisions that are being made in the Secretary of State's office, either at the local level or at the state level, and then this language that pops up here in a very partisan um, event, and so they want to see if there's a correlation. I'm not saying there is or isn't, but I'm saying that I can understand why they want to further examine this language, because all that has happened um, in various election cycles to people of color while trying to vote.
1: Martha, the judge did give uh, the Fair Fight Action folks just a little bit more room in their questioning. Uh, he, he wrote that um, Kemp can also be asked to provide information about whether state election officials investigated and resolved complaints uh, quickly. And that can become, that, that really does speak to one of the more important aspects of the case, the Fair Fight Action folks would say, and that's things like um, absentee voters uh, not getting their votes, believing, not having their votes uh, accepted, uh, people who showed up at the polls to vote and were told they weren't uh, registered. I mean, that does give them a little more leeway to address some of the larger questions in their suit, right?
3: I mean, I think it does, but I think that if you look at the entire record, and I'm sure they will at some point in time, of of voter turnout and registration throughout not just Kemp, but Handel and those that have been in Secretary of State positions for the last 10 years or so, uh, we have really seen a dramatic increase across the board of people registered to vote and going out to vote. And and I think that's a great thing. OK, and I'm, I'm willing to bet I haven't been to a Democratic Party meeting in a really long time. <laughs> I probably should. But I'm willing to <laughs> bet there's kind of language like that going on in those meetings, too, saying that you can't let those other folks catch up with us. And I don't know what terminology they use to describe those other folks. OK, but you can't let those folks catch up with us. We've got the momentum. We're going to get out there. Look, party meetings are Kind of, you know, rah-rah meeting. Sure, they're rallying, uh,
0: Christ. Yeah, <laughs> the
3: problem is, whether it's a Republican meeting or a Democrat meeting, although I think the Democrats are probably doing a better job getting people to come to their meetings right now, it's hard to get people in general to come to meetings. And yep. so that's another issue for another day to talk about, is what is the structure— that's going to really get people to the polls. And I think that Fair Fight Georgia and on the left and other groups on the right are trying to figure that out right so, now. So,
1: so, Martha, I think everything you just said makes a lot of sense. I am going to call you out very quickly. I think I should put a buzzer in the studio for every time a conservative uh, member of the panel talks about the Democrat Party instead of the Democratic Party. Because I guarantee you, I guarantee you, there will be more tweets and Facebook Live posts (laughs) about your calling it the Democrat Party. Yeah, that was unintentional, (laughs) but I get those tweets myself. (laughs) Yes, thank you. So tomorrow we'll see. I mean, it's very hard to see just how this, I mean, clearly the judge is going to have to look at all this, but we're moving ahead with the 2020 election. The Georgia legislature this last session did make some changes to election laws to address some of the concerns that have been raised. So it's going to be interesting to see how much traction. Uh, this case really gets in the months ahead.
0: Exactly. And with all this noise, excuse me, with impeachment and with primaries and the presidential primaries, it'll be hard. But seeing a sitting governor deposed, um, breakthrough. (laughs) I would would say to that
3: very quickly, you know, while I don't want to see any governor's time taken up a lot with this kind of stuff, I do think it's very important that when necessary, even governors – can be called in and ask questions about things. And I I don't think that's a bad thing. And Steve Jones is a guy I know very well. He served as the head of the UGA Alumni Association Board when I was a board member there. So I know him very well. I trust him. uh, And he has great integrity. So I'm not saying he's never made a mistake, and I'm not going to judge this yet. But um, he's a guy I trust. So I'm willing to sit back and see what happens. Okay,
2: Joe, I agree with Martha as well. I think no... No elected official is above our our, our our legal system. And so I think it's important that if, if you're called upon, you should, you should speak. And be, if it needs to be deposed. But what I want to say is that in the midst of all this going on, then we have the integration of the new voting machines on top of that. So at, um, 2020, when it's, we have like a perfect storm in Georgia with two Senate races and up-and-down com- ballots, uh, up-and-down the ballot be competitive races in a presidential race. I just—if somebody wanted to write a paper, this is the perfect time to do so on this matter because it's so much dynamism going on and there's so many variables in place that could, that could really impact um, po- key political and, outcomes.
1: And the presidential primary in Georgia is barreling down on us and especially— election officials tomorrow we're talking about march 24th -hmm. getting all the machines in place dealing with the registration issues that have been raised and i mean it it, joel's right we have got a a, we're going to be following a pretty interesting story in the months ahead
0: yeah and that's not the only race i mean we have the you know that's only for the presidential primaries and we've got the the state level ones in may Mm -hmm. runoffs senate races
1: Can't wait. That's why we're going to be on five days a week. Absolutely. Uh, One other quick thing, and maybe we'll do a little crowdsourcing here. I tried uh, before going on the air to see if I could find a previous example of a governor of Georgia uh, being called to uh, give a deposition in a a lawsuit like this and – Someone suggested that maybe Governor Barnes had to do it when, uh, when the uh, districts that they drew, drew in 2000 went to court. But I don't recall that's the case. So maybe we'll turn it over to our listeners. They're a smart group, Joel. See if they can recall a time when a Georgia governor has been asked to be involved or has been ordered, essentially, to be involved in a case like this. All right. Let's move on. Um, Martha, uh, Chris Ray, a guy who had a very comfortable well-paying job as a private attorney here in Atlanta. Uh, you know he he uh, he heard the call of duty when President Trump asked him to step in as head of the FBI, uh, and. Chris Ray has managed, Martha, to keep a pretty low profile, except for a couple of very notable exceptions, one of them being the last 24 hours or so in the aftermath of the inspector general's release of the report on uh, how the FBI, how the Justice Department, uh, what the predicates were for beginning their investigation of whether the Trump campaign was uh, doing—it was illegally uh, talking to Russians— and uh, Chris Ray couldn't help after the IG said, "I think for the most part, well, Martha, you expo- you tell them other other people. I'm talking too much. You can re- characterize the IG's report, which essentially was uh, they made mistakes, but it isn't what Trump said it was."
3: Well, I think that's. I mean, look, we're going to be debating this. I, I I do have a real problem with. Um, you know, they've been talking about what's in the report before it came out. It came out yesterday and now everybody's an expert on it. Right. I'm certainly not an expert on it. I've, <laughs> I've reviewed it. But but I can't tell I, I want to trust what's in a report like that because I want to trust my institutions uh, like that. But um, Chris Ray has has stepped in it. I mean, he got a response from the president. Um, you know, we're going to just have to see what happens. Then.
1: So the inspector general reported that there were serious mistakes made, uh, particularly in the way in which uh, the FISA right. warrants were uh, uh, asked for, uh, and that they requ- and, and Chris Wright did say when he, but but also the IG said, but there was no intent, political intent, on the part of anyone in justice to go after President Trump's campaign or then-candidate Trump's campaign, to spy on the campaign. He absolved the responsibility for for that part of it. Chris Ray, in an interview
4: with ABC News about all this, said this. Well, I think it's important for the American people to know that when the FBI opens an investigation, it does so with proper predication, uh, with proper authorization, uh, based on the law and the facts and nothing else. And I think uh, it's important that the inspector general found that in this particular instance, the investigation was opened with appropriate predication and authorization. The inspector general did not find political bias or improper motivations impacting the opening of the investigation or the decision to use certain investigative tools during the investigations,
2: is the FBI? Was it part of some deep state?
4: Well, I think that's the kind of label that is a disservice to the 37,000 men and women who work at the FBI, who I think tackle their jobs with uh, with professionalism, with rigor, with objectivity, and with courage. Um, so. That's not a term I would ever use to describe our workforce, and I think it's an affront to them.
1: Joel, the question about the deep state, of course, a direct, direct reflection of what President Trump has said about uh, much of the intelligence community. And Chris Ray says, "Don't talk about our people that way. You're doing them a disservice. They're they're uh, people of
2: great integrity." Well, I appreciate the director. Stepping up and and defending his people, um, there are others who in the administration who have not done that. And let me just say this: Bill, as a person who's worked most of his life in public service in local government, I wonder about the morale of federal employees, and I wonder about the the erosion of objectivity and independence of public servants where their product is about is supposed to be data driven based on the facts. It's about service. It's not about politics. It's not about serving politics. It's about serving people. And I and I'm concerned because the federal government plays such a major role in our lives. And if you have these individuals who are fearful of making a decision because they believe it doesn't align with the politics of the president and that if they and if it doesn't, that they can be vilified and put in public And and, and brought to the public and being demonized and be uh, charged with being a part of a deep state. How do we expect for our our public servants who are doing phenomenal work for us day in and day out to be able to conduct the work they need on our behalf?
1: That was certainly tomorrow what uh, Chris Ray had in mind when he made his remarks to ABC News. Uh, The president had a different idea. He tweeted this morning this— I don't know what report current director – I thought it's interesting – current director of the FBI, <laughs> Christopher Wray, was reading, but it sure wasn't the one given to me. With that kind of attitude, he will never be able to fix the FBI, which is badly broken despite having some of the greatest men and women working there.
0: And, and I mean, that's an ominous sign for, for Chris Ray's future. You know, on the one hand, he was appointed for 10 years with the idea that, you know, this kind of gets him out of the day to day politics. A 10 year term would stretch across two administrations, even if you have someone serving for for eight years. But at the same time, Trump didn't hesitate to fire Jim Comey or or to really, um, you know, trash his his successor, Andrew McCabe, in the press as well. So, you know, that created a lot of problems for him, obviously, after he fired Comey. And, and you know, he's still dealing with the implications of that now. Uh, a lot of that led to the Mueller stuff. But, um, you know, he hasn't been afraid in the past. And, and maybe this is a bad sign for Chris Wray.
1: Um, Martha, we, we, I want you to feel free to weigh in on any aspect of this as you want to. But I'd also like to add this, if I may. This isn't the first time that Chris Ray has found himself somewhat at odds with the president. Back when the president of the United States uh, said that he thought accepting help from—he would certainly listen if a foreign government came to him with dirt on uh, on an opponent. He thought it was important to listen to that person. At the time, Chris Ray said he thought that was a mistake. He said that publicly. And we have learned subsequently, or we believe we've learned, that he considered whether he ought to resign— Uh, in the aftermath of that incident. So go ahead, Martha. Well,
3: I mean, and that does not surprise me that he would consider that because you have to, even though the FBI director has a 10-year term, regardless of who's elected president, you have to consider whether you're going to be able to, um, in some way, do the, um, uh, support the policy of the president, of the current president, because he's ultimately, you know, the final word. He's the person that can fire you. He's who you report to. Um, I, I think the challenge that you have with all of these is that there was clearly, while I believe most of the people that work for the FBI are great folks, I know a lot of people that work for the FBI, there were some people that caused some great damage to the FBI. I mean, I think the way Comey handled things at the end with these memos that he was keeping in different places and leaking to the press and doing that sort of thing, it's great for us in the press, but I don't think it's the way to do business in the FBI because you have to have a certain level of trust in intelligence agencies that you don't have to know everything they're doing. You don't want to know everything they're doing because you have to trust that they're working at the best interest of our country. And then the text messages were very problematic to me of the the couple that were involved in an affair which you know in today's workplace you know they that that's a problem. Yeah, Don't there's
1: be- no. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish. No, your but statement.
3: that's that's my concern. There is that that there were people that were a worm in the FBI that were seemed to be opposed to Trump because of him being Trump, and not because of anything that he did. You
1: know what? Um, so Joel. Martha makes a point. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are always these, there are these little tidbits here and there that do tend to keep this from being as clean. Many of the things we're dealing with right now in terms of Democratic and Republican arguments back and forth have just a kernel of something that raises questions. Strozak and Page, their communications mm-hmm. back and forth uh, certainly seemed uh, unseemly in many ways. And, of course, Trump has seized upon that. But the IG looked at that as well as the rest of this investigation of Russian involvement with the Trump campaign. And he said there was no effort to be to politicize. But that doesn't take away that little cloud hanging over all this for the people who want something to grab
2: hold of. Right. And I will say this. We are fallible people who operate in fallible organizations. Right. We uh, no organization is perfect. Right. But. I would say that my concern is this idea that there's a cabal working together in a deep state. And for all of you listening, I'm doing air quotes Um, (laughs) in a deep state and that they're somehow plotting the demise of of Donald Trump. That's really problematic because, there's in, I, I used the word before, intentionality. That means people are coming together for the purpose of destroying him. And there's been no proof of that. And this IG report saying that there was no political bias whatsoever. Well,
1: okay, we've got to get to a break. Uh, Tomorrow I'm going to get, but we're not going to, guys, if you don't mind holding off, I don't want to take a break until we've heard what William Barr just said a little while ago. The attorney general just weighed in, in an exclusive interview with Pete Williams at NBC News. It just broke uh, shortly before we went on the air. And listen to how Barr uh, interprets the IG's report and what he thinks about that report.
4: I think probably from a civil liberties standpoint, the greatest danger to our free system is that the incumbent government use the apparatus of the state, principally the law enforcement agencies and the intelligence agencies, both to spy on political opponents, but also to use them in a way that could affect the outcome of the election. As far as I'm aware, this is the first time in history that this has been done to a presidential campaign, the use of uh, these counterintelligence techniques against a presidential campaign. Tomorrow?
0: Yeah, I mean, it shows the, the tough position that especially Chris Ray has been put in in all this. You know, uh, Bill Barr is his boss. Yeah. He's the one he has to directly report to. And, and it's rare that you see such a fissure between those two. Usually it's between the president and the Justice Department. And, and it shows the, the tough spot that he's in because not only is he tasked with kind of rebuilding morale within the agency after Jim Comey, after Andrew McCabe, after all these text messages being leaked publicly, but you also have to rebuild trust in the eyes of the public, and you have a president who will go on Twitter and you know say all sorts of things about you, and, and it's a tough job. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we'll see how it plays out in the uh, uh, d- days ahead. But you're exactly right, and despite the fact that many people thought this IG's report, and certainly Chris Ray has already said, I'm embracing the problems the report uh, revealed, and we're going to fix them. Uh, you would you would have hoped that maybe this IG's report would put a period on all of this concern about whether the Trump uh, campaign was, in fact, the victim of political spying or not. That is not the case. We'll probably be talking about this story for weeks and weeks to come. Uh, Right now, though, let's take our first break of the show. We'll be back in just a minute.
4: During this season of giving, we're counting on you to help GPB finish 2019 strong and prepare to make the most of what 2020 will bring, particularly with the next presidential election on the horizon. Make your tax-deductible year-end gift now at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788, and your contribution will be matched dollar for dollar thanks to Jane Hyatt at the Hyatt Fund Community Foundation of Mississippi. Thank you.
3: When Atlanta hosted the 1996 Olympics, a terrorist struck.
4: There was an explosive device that does that
3: In the rush for justice, the wrong man was presumed guilty. You know my name, but you do not really know who I am. Mistaken. The real story of Richard Jewell follows his descent from hero to villain in the court of public opinion. Join us for this special broadcast from On Second Thought. Friday morning at 9 on GPB or stream it from the On Second Thought podcast feed.
1: I have to tell you, I have been sort of watching uh, Virginia Prescott and her team work on this Richard Jewell uh, uh, show that they're putting together. And it's really going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing it on Friday morning and hope all of you will be uh, tuning in as well. Um, Before we get back to our topics for the day, let me remind you all we're looking for people who want to be on the radio People who want to join our citizen panel, which I hope we're going to do by the end of January. Uh, and and you can uh, you can nominate yourself. You can be just like the people who wanted to uh, apply for Johnny Isaacson's Senate job. Uh, you can call our special hotline number, 404-685-2426. Tell us your name. Uh, give us your phone number, obviously. Tell us where what part of the state you live in. Let us know, are you a Trump supporter, are you anti-Trump, Democrat, Republican, and then very briefly tell us why you would be a good person to be part of our citizen panel. And please do it all in a minute or less, because about a minute in, uh, Sam's going to cut it off and not listen to the rest of what you have to say. (laughs) So 404-685-2426. We've already had an awful lot of people who want to be part of that show, so we're only going to do this for a few more days. So if you're interested, I think you should uh, get your voicemail to us as soon as possible. Okay. Um, Tamara Hallerman... So we're now almost a week after the announcement that uh, Brian Kemp's putting Kelly Leffler into the United States Senate. She'll be there in Johnny Isaacson's seat starting in January and then stand for election, uh, the special election in November. And your colleagues and you over at the AJC have re- been reporting on this. Uh, the Jolt has had a lot of information. There have been stories in the newspaper itself. Uh, she's now starting to make her move. She's starting to get out there Talking to political insiders, give us a little sense of what Kelly Loeffler is doing right now about this uh, effort.
0: Yeah, well, we've we've had the one public event now with the governor last week, where he introduced her to the press and to the state as a whole as as you know his his designate for the, the Senate seat, and and we saw her really try and and talk about how she's a good conservative and that was a big concern. You saw a lot of conservatives who were very concerned they wanted Doug Collins in, in for that seat um, and so really questioned her credentials. They talked about the WNBA, how they've done events in the past with Planned Parenthood, kind of framing her as, as kind of a closet liberal or, or a rhino. Or they threw whatever. a lot of
1: shade on Grady Hospital, sure. saying it's a place that trains abortion sure. doctors. So,
0: so you saw her try and assage all, the, all that criticism and, and frame herself as, as a you know, not only a Kemp conservative, but a Trump conservative as well. She really highlighted her support for the president. She talked about a lot of Kemp's initiatives, anti-gang sorts of things, her support for, um, you know, tightening, tightening immigration rules, that sort of thing. So that's what we've seen from her so far. We're waiting to, to do interviews with her and that sort of thing, and we'll see in, in the weeks ahead. She still has to hire a staff and get all of that assembled, and uh, you know, we don't know much about her financial situation. She's going to have to um, start filing forms with the Senate as well, so that'll. Kind soon, and, and we don't know much about the work she's going to be doing on the Hill yet.
1: Martha, I thought one of the most important things uh, we learned is that one of the calls that Leffler made was to Virginia Galloway, who, you know, I'm sure. And by the way, yes. Martha, I don't want you to have a sore loser attitude when you talk <laughs> no, about this. No, 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 no. <laughs> because we all know you put your name in there and you would have been great. But uh, so... She talked to Virginia Galloway, uh, Ralph Reed's Faith and Freedom Coalition uh, uh, representative here in Georgia, and Galloway had nice things to say about her. That's an important sign for Leffler, isn't it?
3: No, I think it is too. And uh, I've had a couple of conversations with her also. I um, ah. I think that it'll be um, you know it'll be interesting to see how all of this plays out. And, you know, it's look, it's it's a hit the ground running, but it's also you don't want to have any missteps, you know, initially when you get started. So you sort of have this period of time between now and the end of the year, um, you know, where um, she'll be getting her campaign team together. And I would watch that very closely about who ends up being in the campaign team. You know, are they Kemp people Or are they Purdue people? Are they a mixture of the two? I think it'll be very interesting to see from a political standpoint, and we're Political Rewind, how that all plays out. Because that will kind of set up some of the... uh uh, interesting ways we're going to look at this in 2020.
0: And she's really going to have to start her political operation completely in tandem or even have that almost trump the official office kind of side of her duties. What's great about being a senator is you're only running for re-election every six years. She only gets 11 months in the Senate before she has to go through all of this. And so,
3: then two years and she'll have to do it again if she wins. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So a very defensive posture she's going to have to start. And she already knows, you know, you're seeing Democrats start staff, staffing up. You know, the, the party hired a spokesman just on this race to, to be talking about it. So she's going to be under the microscope in a way that maybe only Lucy McBath understands right now.
1: Uh, that's fascinating to compare to that. Um, Martha, is, um, is Kelly Loeffler conservative enough for uh, Republicans in Georgia to decide to support her, to stop worrying about Doug Collins or other people that you they know, think I, are conservative I, enough?
3: I, And I think so, and I'll tell you why. One of the things that, you know, I'm working on my master's degree right now, and my my thesis is on women's electoral success in the Republican Party. And that's one of the things I'm studying and working on. And if you take a look... At this situation that we are find ourselves in as Republicans is not about necessarily flipping Democrats. This is about getting back Republicans and independents that we have lost in the last two elections. And if you look at that area, that arc of the state, OK, that is uh, the area that voted for Hillary Clinton, then voted for Stacey Abrams, voted for Karen Handel in the special, who's a Republican, and then voted for Lucy McBath. They, have, they are, have no problem voting for women. They voted for women four times now. Uh, but we've got to get them back. And Kelly Loeffler is the kind of Republican, the conservative Republican, that's going to be able to get those people back on board uh, and be able to win elections.
2: Joe? Oh, well, the way I look at it, too, and I, I agree with what Martha said, is that my concern is this litmus test, this are you conservative enough, are you progressive enough, and then what happens is that you shrink the the spectrum where it's just a very finite you know space for people to to claim being conservative or democrat and that's really problematic because you know I'm old enough to 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 know politics in a time where you know when you talked about democrat I ran the full. Ideological gamut. You well, know, Republicans too. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But but there's something important about that because it's you're, you're making people silent who have a voice in the conversation, and that's really problematic. Where people say, "I have," it's an either or. It's a binary choice, and 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 you're not offering me enough of space where I can truly identify who I am and speak my truth politically. That's problematic, and I think that's going to be counterintuitive in the long run for for any party um, who wants to ensure that they have enough people supporting their vision.
1: Well, the question that we have asked on this show, and I imagine we'll continue asking it, is why tomorrow? People believe, and and Martha really referred to it. And I know she is not this reductionist, but but I'll let you talk about it, and she can answer then. Uh, just because you're a woman doesn't mean women are going to vote for you if your issues are wrong.
0: Sure, and just because she's from the Atlanta suburbs doesn't mean that suburban women are going to vote for her either. And and the question is how she threads the needle, right? Because she she has two groups she really needs to appeal to right now. She has to she has to um, win over the Republican base that's very skeptical of her right now and is more inclined to back somebody like Doug Collins you know, who could challenge her, jump into this jungle primary. She also has to woo these suburban Republican women, just like Martha was talking about, who who were really wooed by people like Stacey Abrams talking about things like Medicaid expansion and education and that sort of thing. So it's going to be a really tough line or, you know, needle to thread. And it'll be interesting to see what issues she really um, focuses on once she gets to the Senate in order to do that.
1: Martha, um, I want to change the subject just briefly. Uh, well, I mean, still still Leffler, but a different... Aspect of Leffler. You know, when her name was announced last week, I immediately started thinking of her first and foremost as a candidate, which is certainly what she will be. But even more quickly than that, she has to become a member of the United States Senate and begin to deal with what it means to be in the Senate, deal with issues in the Senate. And so, in many ways, that's the first opportunity we're going to get to see her. How does she deal with what's happening on the floor of the Senate? What kind of votes will she take? What issues will even come to the floor for votes?
3: Impeachment every day. She's going to deal (laughs) with impeachment. That is the number one thing that she has in her favor. That's right. Because she is going to be the senator. and, And I would say to anybody, I would advise anybody, you know, that that and I'm sure on the Democrat side, they're giving the same advice. You want to have the minimum number of people as possible in this so-called uh, primary uh, at, in November, because because it, you, you could end up with two Democrats or two Republicans going through and then because there'll probably be a runoff. It's a problem. But there is one person that, you know, we haven't mentioned here too much. And it's Johnny Isaacson and Johnny Isaacson's staff all of his staff is not going to go away. A certain number of those folks are going to stay. And there's nobody better on staff because everybody knows that, yes, you're going to be on the floor and she's going to get um, uh, pluses or minuses based on what she does on the floor. But that constituent services, that that being able to keep that Senate office running, being able to handle things that come in, that is something that a lot of people don't put a lot of value in. But I do, having been a person that's done that kind of work. Um, it's it's important. So she's got three tracks, really, that are really important here. How she's going to get that office up and running and keep constituent services going, what she's going to do on the floor, and then how she's going to put her cap- campaign staff together.
0: Exactly. And an issue, because it did take Governor Kemp a little while to appoint somebody or announce somebody after Johnny retired or announced his retirement, was that there were some staffers who maybe would have been inclined to, to work for Leffler or whoever Kemp appointed, but, but who got so nervous right. about waiting, right. who, who left and decided to go on to other things. So I am interested to see how many of them jump. But then another thing to mention is, is going off of Martha said what issues she really focuses on when impeachment is not in the spotlight. The idea, or at least what I'm reading, is that impeachment hearings will be in the afternoon, which leaves all morning for hearings and that sort of things. Does she pick a signature issue like Karen Handel did on human trafficking, like Lucy McBath is trying to do on VA veterans issues where you can try and broaden your appeal?
1: that's really a th- good point th- thank you for that um, one other quick thing about that Tamar is you know Republicans are sort of gleefully talking about the fact that when the trial if a trial is going to be held if the house almost inevitably does vote out impeachment uh, uh, articles uh, that it's going to take some of the Democratic presidential candidates off the campaign trail uh, because they got to sit in the in the trial in the Senate well Uh, If the if the if a presumed trial does take place in January, uh, that's still many months before the November election. But Kelly Kelly Loeffler has got to start getting up to speed with the campaign and, and I'm wondering, to some extent, does the impeachment trial, you know, hamper her a little bit in her efforts to get out there and have a campaign?
0: Sure. And she has to, you know, get to know Georgia voters, which means spending time here in Georgia. You know, she she wasn't really known as much outside of Metro Atlanta. So mm-hmm. that that will be definitely, you know, certainly a challenge, especially since there is talk about keeping senators in even on Saturdays and stuff to to hear this testimony. Yeah, so. they
3: always threaten that tomorrow, <laughs> don't they?
1: <laughs> All right. Hey, yeah. I've got I've got got a thread i've got to put out there we're going to take another break uh because we have to get it in and if i don't get it in sam and tom are going to come in here and turn off my microphone so let's take our final break of the show we'll be right back with more
0: I'm Noelle King. Over the past year, you listened as news broke and developed. You kept up with it all because being informed is important to you. And maybe as the stories
3: changed, you did too. You heard new angles and voices. You understood. You grew. There will be more to learn in the new year and we'll explore it all together. So please
0: make a year-end gift now because when we grow, you do too. Donate online at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. On the next Fresh Air, Peter Bergen, National Security Analyst for CNN and author of the new book Trump and His Generals, The Cost of Chaos. We'll talk about how Trump went from bragging about the generals and his administration to later basically going to war with them. Bergen says now that the generals are no longer in the administration, Trump is surrounded by yes-men. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 right here on GPB and on gpbnews.org.
1: Martha Zoller, Tamar Hallerman, Joel Alvarado on Political Rewind today. Joel, you wanted to make one quick statement about the people who are now the Republican
2: candidates for the Senate. Yes, uh, I was just thinking about relatability, that now you have two very wealthy individuals representing the state of Georgia as United States senators and there's so many challenges that everyday hardworking Georgians are facing, and one of the so for 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 the senator elect, well, not was senator elect, but the incoming senator, she she has to figure out a way to create a narrative in the midst of everything else that we talked about, uh, to say that I understand you, I'm here to represent you. And, and I'm here to provide the service that I believe we deserve as Georgia's United you know, States Senate. You uh,
1: know, so Martha, let, I want to move on from this, but I do want to give you a chance to uh, say something about that. You know, two things, really, from my point of view. One of them is, I, it'd be interesting to see surveys of how much wealth really matters anymore to a lot of voters. I mean, I know Bernie Sanders talks about it a lot, Elizabeth Warren, and we certainly know there's a huge gap and disparity That's that's one of the biggest problems the country faces between rich and poor, but I'm not sure Plays out in terms of how voters make up their minds about a, a, a well, who they vote for.
3: Well, have you looked at the net worth of United States senators, including the two, the one you just mentioned? Well, I mean, it's it's there. But I, I will tell you, in the case of both Senator Perdue and and Senator Loeffler, uh, Leffler or Senator designate Loeffler, she they have these stories of coming from humble beginnings, yeah. going to public colleges you know, having things, you know, so they've got a story of success in America that started from, you know, from humble beginnings. So I I think you're, I don't think people have a I don't think people oppose that kind of wealth. I, I really, I'm, I'm with you. I kind of look at wealthy people and go, okay, what did they do to get there, and how can I do it?
1: So I do think Leffler has a really good personal story to tell. Yes. Growing up in rural Illinois, you know, working with animals on the farm, being a big, big h So we'll be, it'll be interesting to see how she uh, t- turns, t- you know, uses that as she's out there on the campaign trail. Can I? Go ahead. Finish. I just,
0: I for me, the argument I would make is right now to voters that the litmus test matters a lot more. Are you sufficiently conservative? Yeah. Are you sufficiently right. liberal? Right. Right. Um, and not only that, but campaigns are so expensive now that to the the party bosses who are deciding who to lift up in the party, it certainly helps if you can. And-
3: as much as I hate to say it, tomorrow, it is the abortion issue on both sides yes. that is that litmus test. That is the most important litmus test of all. And there might be other issues that you have to follow on the left or the right, but that's it. I mean, that's it. And if you don't fo- toe the line on that, you get thrown to the walls. All
1: right. Um, let's move on. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, one of the candidates for the Republican nomination, tomorrow in the 6th District, uh, it, it, we're hearing reports that she may decide to bail out of that race and move over to the 14th where Tom Graves is resigning from a seat, which means perhaps Republicans in Georgia are trying to clear the field for Karen Handel to have a rematch with Lucy McBath.
0: Yeah, a lot of Karen uh, Karen Handel's Republican opponents have been starting to to melt away. You saw Brandon Beach decide that he'd rather stay in the state Senate as, as transportation chairman. You saw um, Nicole Rodden say that, you know, her funding is drying up. She was she was going to give up. You had Donnie Belenna, who Self-destructed in and, out, and said and a bunch out. of horrible things, <laughs> and then you had Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, who's who's a newcomer who who had some qu- tweets that a lot of people saw as very very questionable. But on the you know on the other side, she had a lot of money to self fund and put in something like half a million dollars in seed money, and so for that reason, we were watching her. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, how formidable she could be in in the 14th, which is one of the most conservative congressional districts in Georgia.
1: Yeah, um, well, there are a couple of interesting aspects of that. One of them is uh, Joel. I'm not sure. I mean, I understand that the uh, you know the Republican uh, congressional campaign committee has put has endorsed Karen Handel in that race. She's getting some money from Washington. But we have not seen. The same kind of commitment from national Republican organizations to Karen Handel that we have to that, uh, to the candidates they're backing and some of the other important districts to them. I'm, I'm not sure the Republicans have decided they really can beat Karen Handel. I'd like to get your take on
2: it. And then, I'll of course, ask Martha whether or not they whether or not Karen whether Handel can beat can really Lucy McBath. Be Lucy McBath. Right. I apologize. Well, I, I think they hope. Well, but sure. they realized that if you look at the trend regarding the uh the part the sixth district regarding the electorate it's moving it's moving to become more diverse it's greater is greater uh migration of people of color that are living there now uh, from from the city of Atlanta to the suburbs and I think this they see a trend they see that um in Cobb and they see that in north DeKalb and they' see in little parts of Fulton that the the sixth district is becoming not just purple, but it's becoming more and more blue and I think they realize she has a lot strong local support. But I think maybe they're just trying to be more judicious regarding the utilization of their dollars. Mar- they're meaning the, the Congress. Martha,
1: I I base my comment, my observation on the fact that there I, – and I frankly don't remember what organization it was. There was a, there was a spot produced by a Republican organization that condemned uh, the Democrats in swing districts who were supporting impeachment. They put TV money into some of the districts uh, they were targeting. But they didn't put TV money into the sixth here. I think they put up – Uh, internet ads uh, that attacked Lucy McBath for supporting impeachment. That may not be much evidence, but it does make me wonder a little bit.
3: Well, I mean, certainly... I think by nature of this being the 1st reelect, re-elect, um, it's most volatile. So there is an opportunity, I think, for Karen Handel to come back in there. Uh, I think it's going to be a hard-fought race, just like the 7th District is going to be a hard-fought race. I would disagree that it's blue yet, but I think that the state, you know, is, is definitely becoming – more islandy, right? You know, yeah. you've got the Atlanta metro area that's getting to be blue, uh, and then the rural areas are are redder in some ways. So, yes, for the sixth district, I think it's going to be a very hard fought battle. And you know, for years, there have been a lot more money for female Democrat candidates than there have been for female Republican candidates, and um, that has been a challenge. I mean, you know, ever since the inception of Emily's List, which is the most well known of that group. Uh, there have been a lot of money put behind Democrat uh, women, and you see the results in Congress. Now, it's still 20 points lower than the electorate is. It's still only 30 or 37 percent of the makeup of Congress is uh, uh, of Democrats are female, but it's 8 percent of the makeup of Congress yeah. of of Republican females.
1: Yep. Uh, Republicans haven't found an answer. Melita yep. Easters, who's often on this show, just the other day, released another list of Democratic uh, pro-choice women who she's uh, putting out there and let's like, get attracted. You're starting for... to
0: see it on the right. Elise Stefanik, her group, recently endorsed yes. Karen Handel and is starting to put yep. some resources Okay, behind. thank you In for my... Yeah,
3: there's a few out
0: there. All right.
1: Uh, Tamar, you said to me during the break, what? No impeachment? It's a— ra- <laughs> Tamar, it's a rabbit hole. I let, we should let CNN and MSNBC and Fox fight it out. I just want, we, of course, we talk about it when it's in the top of the agenda, but. You're not disappointed. We're not delving into it and getting ourselves no, all worked thrilled. up. Are you?
0: I'll let you and Stein deal with it tomorrow. <laughs>
1: all right. <laughs> We're out of time for today's show. Uh, Tamara Hallerman, Joel Alvarado, Martha Zahler, thank you all so much for a really engaging conversation. We will be back tomorrow. Greg Bluestein will be uh, with us along with a great another great panel. Uh, And we'll have a lot more issues, as we always do, to discuss on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I'll see you then.